Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're talking about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States of America. Specifically, we'll be looking at how he helped navigate America through the Great Depression via the work of the New Deal. Roosevelt, more commonly known as, and will mostly be called in this episode, FDR, was instrumental in the early 20th century political field of America, essentially transforming the Democratic Party from its 19th century form into something that is much more resembling its 21st century iteration. He's also the only president to be elected four times. Also, just in case you don't know enough about American presidencies or are an American who didn't learn this fun fact in, like, third grade, yes, FDR and Teddy Roosevelt are related. They were fifth cousins, which is technically a fancy way of saying barely related. Well, actually, FDR's wife was Teddy Roosevelt's niece, so they were a bit more closely related than that might originally sound. But even if they were somewhat distantly related by blood, Teddy Roosevelt was FDR's hero as he was growing up. When the older Roosevelt became president, it inspired FDR to run for office. But we're not here to talk about FDR's childhood. We're here to talk about the Great Depression and FDR's New Deal project that would help America work its way out of one of the darkest hours of the 20th century. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the United States of America in the early 20th century in Deal or New Deal. First off, just in case, let's define the Great Depression. It was a period beginning in 1929 that ran through the 1930s in which many global markets experienced an economic depression. An economic depression is a downward trend in economic activities over an extended period of time that can result in many different effects, such as mass unemployment, stock market crashes, or bank closures. Now, I'm not an economist, nor do I have any particular interest in the field, but I do specifically remember something from the one economics class I took during my time in college. Depressions, well, recessions actually, depressions are just longer economic recessions, are naturally baked into the capitalist economic cycle. In regular life, the economy has cycles of ups and downs. You can only go up for so long before you have to start slowing down again. And if you shoot up too quickly, sometimes that means a cataclysmic fall. Now, let's talk about how the Great Depression came about. Well, that's actually a really difficult statement to follow up. Frustratingly, this is a question that has left economists and historians scratching their heads since the Depression itself. How and why did it happen? Because there was no one singular event. It wasn't because of a war or pandemic. It was just a series of fairly normal circumstances, all of which led to a recession happening all at once compounding into the worst economic downturn to have ever happened in human history. But Chris, that one big stock market crash in October of 1929, yeah, that was a factor, but not the sole cause. 
In fact, the Great Depression did not become a Great Depression until a couple years later in the early 30s, after the stock market had somewhat recovered, by the way. So let's try to paint a picture of the various factors. Technically, we can go back pretty far in order to see how things ended up the way they did in America. If you go back about a hundred years prior in the 1820s, you have President Andrew Jackson going to war against the Federal Reserve because he didn't trust the idea of a national bank. Jackson was an idiot, and that meant the American banking system kinda sucked because individual banks had to kinda rely on their own resources. And if an individual bank goes belly up, everyone who uses that bank is suddenly hit on hard times. More recently in our historical time frame, World War I had come to an end. Europe was in a pretty weird place. Germany had to pay massive reparation costs to the Allied powers, mainly Britain and France. Well, those countries were also in a crappy place and owed massive amounts of money to America. It got to a point where money was going from Germany to the European allies to America and never really getting a chance to settle. The post-war period in America saw an economic boom. Industrialization was sweeping the nation. The stock market was skyrocketing. Refer to what I said before about the economic cycle shooting up too quickly. Then the stock market crashed and rich people lost a lot of money. Then a bunch of farmers went into foreclosure because they were no longer needed to supply food for the troops overseas in the war. Then, Europe went belly up into a recession. A bunch of Midwestern banks started closing down. Deflation hit the market, which resulted in massive layoffs. Layoffs meant people couldn't buy things. Other companies started going out of business. This recession was now a depression. A terrible one at that. About one quarter of the American workforce was unemployed. At this time, the President of the United States was Herbert Hoover. Now, he's often pointed at as a source of blame for the Great Depression, at least in letting it get as bad as it did. In his defense, America didn't really have a strategy to fight economic depressions. He tried some economic plans, but they didn't really help. And Congress also wasn't helping out. Luckily, Hoover did not listen to his Secretary of the Treasury, whose plan to fight the Great Depression was just to liquidate everything, which probably would have made things a lot worse. As 1932 rolled around, the American public was crying out for aid. Hoover's popularity was so far down the drain that it could never hope to recover. The people needed someone who was willing to do something about the Depression. Hoover needed to be dealt with. Luckily, someone with a brand new vision for America had decided to run for president. The 1932 US election was a bloodbath for Herbert Hoover. His opponent was the governor of New York, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Hoover was betting his odds on the economy improving, which was obviously the biggest threat to his re-election at the time. Things were in fact looking up a few months before the election. Unfortunately, the economy then took a drastic downturn in the few weeks beforehand, essentially spelling out Hoover's defeat. 
But the election of 1932 was more than just a win for Roosevelt, even if his victory was due to the horrific onslaught of the Great Depression. The Democratic Party of America saw a massive surge in strength with an overwhelming victory. Now, at this point in time, the two main political parties in America, the Democrats and Republicans, were actually switched in who controlled what part of the nation. The Democrats were the party of the American South while the Republicans controlled the American elite in the Northeast. Republicans had also mostly controlled the White House since the party's inception in the 1850s. FDR won nearly 60% of the vote, carrying many states that had been voting for the Republican Party for years. He won 472 of the 531 total available votes in the Electoral College, which is over 200 more than he needed in order to win. Hoover had only won 6 of the 48 states. Hawaii and Alaska were not yet states at this point. It should also be noted that at this point in time, FDR had already been diagnosed with polio and was paralyzed from the waist down. While on the campaign trail, he would make use of leg braces in order to stand up and give speeches behind a podium. He had even relearned to walk short distances. That being said, the public was aware that the president had polio. What they probably didn't actually realize was that he required the use of a wheelchair to mostly get around. FDR had asked the press to never publish pictures of him in a wheelchair, and surprisingly from a modern point of view, they actually listened to him. Besides FDR's victory, Congress was also rocked by a blue wave of Democrats. They managed to win just over 100 seats in the House of Representatives and 12 seats in the Senate. The Democrats had been able to form a new coalition to back up their politics. Before, they had been the party of the Southern Farmers. Now they had Northern factory workers and labor unions, as well as some of the social elite in the Northeast who had previously voted Republican. They also began to become the party of ethnic and religious minorities, picking up black and Jewish voters. This new trend towards the Democrats under FDR would become known as the New Deal Coalition and has lasted basically up to the modern day. Everyone was ready to see what the new president was ready to do to fight the disaster that was the Great Depression. Luckily, FDR was ready to roll out his plan right away. Okay, maybe not right away, but FDR began the footwork of the New Deal on day two of his presidency. He started things off by closing the banks. Well, just for four days. This was to prevent the public from further withdrawing funds from the banks. Remember, banks were on their own and the people desperately needed money to counter the depression. If a bank ran out of money, that was it. FDR called this four-day period into action to get Congress moving ahead with a plan to counteract the hemorrhaging of American banks. Luckily, they came through with the first landmark piece of legislation that would come to form the New Deal, the Emergency Banking Act. This act saw the Federal Reserve pump about $1 billion into banks across the nation. On top of this, government inspectors were tasked with going to the different banks across America in order to see if they were up to snuff. Some were good and were allowed to open up after that four-day period. Others were put on a list to be reorganized so they could be reopened soon. 
and those beyond repair were forced to shut down. The EBA was quickly passed through Congress. The evening before the banks were set to be reopened, FDR gave the first of his series of fireside chats. These were evening radio broadcasts to the American public in which the president spoke candidly about the states of things and offered words of optimism. And the results? A massive success to stem the mess of the bank failures that plagued the early days of the Great Depression. In fact, the Dow Jones, the main stock market index in America, rose 15% in just one day after the banks reopened, still the largest single-day increase in American history. Now, let's take a step back to talk about FDR and the New Deal. Going into office, FDR actually did not have a plan on how to tackle the Great Depression. He had campaigned on a promise to change things, which was more than enough though. So when he was elected, FDR gathered together some of the greatest minds of the time in order to help him figure out a path that could be taken to help America recover. But also, the New Deal should actually be viewed as Congress's victory. After all, it's the legislative branch of the government. FDR may have signed his name to put things into action, but it was Congress who actually penned the bills. Also, the New Deal is not a single piece of legislation, but a wide series of laws and government programs that were put in effect during the early days of FDR's presidency. Some of the most important aspects of the New Deal were passed within FDR's first 100 days in office. He met with Congress every single one of those 100 days in order to ensure that laws were being written and programs formed. The first 100 days of his presidency were so important and influential that the term first 100 days is now used as a barometer measurement for each new president. Which does seem a bit unfair. Not every president has to deal with something on the scale of the Great Depression. Recently, President Biden's first 100 days were spent reversing executive orders made by Trump and enacting safety nets against COVID. By the way, hey Joe, how's that going? COVID? Still here, my dude. So are the concentration camps along the southern border. Anyways, back on topic. FDR's aims were set on what are referred to as the three R's, relief, reform, and recovery. A lot of these were aimed at helping the banks, because, obviously. Other programs were for conservation and employment. There was even an entire section of programs created just for Puerto Rico. And also, even though it was a year into his presidency, FDR's first term saw the repeal of Prohibition with the passing of the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The economy was up and alcohol was back. Things were actually getting better. And oddly enough, this was only the first New Deal. What is known as the First New Deal were the policies and programs enacted during the first two years of FDR's presidency. The Second New Deal refers to further legislation passed in 1935 and 1936. One of the biggest of these new programs was Social Security. Now, the elderly and disabled were able to be given a sense of relief that had not been previously offered to American citizens. The Second New Deal also saw massive improvements with labor unions. They were given more power with the ability of collective bargaining. 
these improvements saw a massive growth in unions over the next few years. The new sweep of programs also took aim at cracking down on monopolies, especially when it came to breaking up electric utility companies. The Second New Deal really started to see a switch in what it meant to be progressive and conservative, and it really started forming what would be the modern US party lines. Those that were for the New Deal were progressives, those against it were conservative. Though weirdly enough, there were criticisms of the New Deal from both sides of the political spectrum. Everyone seemed to want to call it fascist, though the two different sides of the spectrum meant it in different ways, much like people do today. Because no one seems to actually know what fascism is, please do your research. And that also applies to communism and capitalism, I swear to god people just love to say trigger words. For progressives, the New Deal relied too much on helping larger business sectors and didn't do enough to help farmers and other marginalized parties. On the other side of things, conservatives were quick to call the New Deal communist propaganda, with a more conservative Democrat politician named Al Smith publicly decrying FDR as a socialist. The New Deal policies would eventually come under fire when a new Congress was elected in 1938 that sought to change the landscape of America by backpedaling on the new pro-labor work laws. It was only due to FDR's veto power that the New Deal was upheld. For instance, the idea of a standard 40-hour work week was one of the ideas created with the New Deal. So were unemployment benefits and the minimum wage. Without FDR stepping in, all of that would be gone. And this was just during his first term as president. Unsurprisingly, FDR easily won the presidential election in 1936, receiving just over 60% of the popular vote and only missing out on victories in Vermont and Maine. His first major task in his second term was dealing with the Supreme Court. The judicial branch of the US had been a bit of a thorn in FDR's side throughout his first term, as they had threatened to overrule many programs within the New Deal considering the court's more conservative leaning. He attempted to remedy his problem with the proposed Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937. This bill would allow the president to appoint new judges to the Supreme Court for every judge over the age of 70, but only up to six additional justices. By the way, there are nine judges on the US Supreme Court. As of the time of this episode being released, two of the Supreme Court justices are over 70 years old. Now, this could easily be seen as worrying about the mental fitness of the justices considering they are on the court for life, which is still just a really bad idea. New and presumably younger blood in the court would help foster new ways of interpreting laws. Yeah, but in reality the proposed bill was just a measure to allow FDR to pack the court with New Deal supporters. And unfortunately, the bill was stalled in Congress, ironically by the Democrats, under the grounds of being unconstitutional. Which... yeah, it pretty much was. He also entered into a battleground with conservatives, mostly those that were within his own party. As hard as it might be to believe, the Democrats had been the conservative party before FDR was elected. 
In fact, Teddy Roosevelt had been upset with FDR when the latter joined the Democrats as the former had been a Republican before forming his own progressive party, also known as the Bull Moose Party. In the 1938 midterm election, FDR went out swinging in support for pro-New Deal Democrats. However, he was heavily opposed by the Republicans and anti-New Deal Democrats, many of whom lived in the southern states. Unfortunately for the president, the midterm election did not go his way. Republicans gained 72 seats in the House of Representatives and 8 seats in the Senate. The Democrats still had a majority in Congress, but it was a much closer call. And also, not all the Democrats were on FDR's side. This was technically his darkest hour. It didn't help that the economy had suddenly stalled and entered into a new recession in spring of 1937 that lasted through much of 1938. The levels of unemployment reached in this recession were not as high as those that were faced at the beginning of the Great Depression, but the American public had gotten over their honeymoon phase with FDR and his New Deal. As much as FDR wanted to balance the US budget, something he had wanted to do all along but found very difficult with the Depression and his New Deal plans, he realized that the only way to prevent the recession from getting worse was to pump a few billion more dollars in government spending to get things back to normal. Things weren't truly back to normal though. They wouldn't be for another few years with the onset of World War II when the economy got that good old wartime boost which is wild to think that that's just a thing that happens. Speaking of World War II, in 1938, the Nazis annexed Austria. A year later, they would go on to invade Poland. Before we talk about FDR in World War II, let's quickly jump to 1940. It was another election year in America. Now, we hadn't passed the 22nd Amendment yet, the one that made it so a president can only run for two terms. The idea of a president only running for re-election once was just a traditional thing that had been around since George Washington refused to run for a third term. When it started getting closer to the 1940 election, people wondered if FDR would do the unthinkable. Well, he did. He decided to run for that once-in-a-nation's-lifetime third term. And by once-in-a-nation's-lifetime, here I am referring to America. I understand that other presidents can go longer in different countries. The election of 1940 would be FDR's closest battle yet for the presidency. By this point, the Great Depression was more or less over as things were getting back to normal, though again, it wouldn't be until the US entered the war that things would get back to pre-depression levels. FDR's Republican counterpart in the election was businessman Wendell Wilkie, a man who had never held a political office. Funnily enough, Wilkie was actually a Democrat before the election but changed parties to the Republicans because he thought he'd have a better chance at getting nominated. He had always assumed FDR would run for a third term. Wilkie was critical of the New Deal and FDR's cold stance on the war in Europe. He also pointed out that if FDR ran and won a third campaign, what would stop him from being president for life? Unfortunately for Wilkie, FDR was still very popular, just not as popular as before. Wilkie would end up winning 10 states, mostly in the Midwest. 
That being said, FDR still handily won over 400 electoral votes. It's also been discovered that the UK helped interfere in the election to get FDR re-elected, not that he really needed the help. So what would FDR be dealing with in his unprecedented third term? Well, as I've not so carefully been tiptoeing around, it was World War II. Over the past couple of years when it became abundantly clear that war was coming, Roosevelt started weighing his options. He had also started getting in touch with Winston Churchill, and this was before Churchill was elected Prime Minister. Congress had already voted several times to stay out of things. That being said, FDR wanted to, at the very least, lend aid to the US's allies with sales of firearms. However, this too was against the neutrality acts as voted on by Congress. So, in a wild move that flew in the face of the checks and balances system of the US government, FDR started supplying the UK with World War I-era ships. It was his hope to become, as he worded it, an arsenal of democracy. He would supply the Allied forces with whatever they needed short of actual US soldiers. By June of 1941, FDR was also supplying weapons to the Soviet Union. Somehow, he managed to keep up the act that America truly would not enter World War II. But that all changed in December of that year when Japan came knocking on the US's back door. At this point in history, Japan and the US were very much not allies. Duh, why else would one nation attack the other? This was a relatively recent mutual distrust that had grown though. The two nations had been somewhat friendly with each other since the US came barging into the Tokugawa shogunate's isolationist policies in the 1850s. That's a whole other story, but basically the US helped open Japan back up to the world, which would be both good and bad in the long run. The US had helped Japan industrialize itself during the Meiji Restoration of the late 1800s, which very much also meant its help to westernize the nation. As the loss of the historical Japanese sense of self became more apparent to the people of the nation, the growing resentment towards the US continued to grow and boil over. Then, in the 1930s, Japan invaded northern China and started conquering other island nations in Southeast Asia. China and the US were allies at this point. In response to the expansionist and militaristic policies of the Japanese Empire, in July of 1941, FDR ordered to shut off Japan's access to US oil. America supplied a vast majority of the oil Japan was using at this time, like almost all of it. This was the final nail in the coffin. Now, FDR had to know Japan would retaliate after being cut off from the US. Did he know where and when it would happen? No. He'd actually been expecting an attack closer to the Asian mainland, most like the Philippines, which were still owned by the US at that time though. There's been conspiracy theories for years that Roosevelt and other senior military officials kinda just let the attack on Pearl Harbor happen. However, all those theories are untrue. But still, that didn't stop Japanese soldiers from leading an airstrike on the Pearl Harbor naval base in Hawaii on the 7th of December 1941. 
Over 2,400 Americans were killed in the attack, soldiers and civilians alike. FDR called the attack on Pearl Harbor a date that will live in infamy. In a nearly unanimous vote, Congress voted to go to war against Japan. But uh-oh, Japan was allied with Germany and Italy. Just under a month later, FDR organized a new wartime council and met with the leaders of the Allied powers to discuss the war going forward with American soldiers now in the thick of it. Throughout most of America's time in the war, the main trio of the Allies was FDR, Churchill, and Joseph Stalin. China was also a major force in the war, but Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of the Republic of China, different from the People's Republic of China, was never held to the same heights as those three. As I've said before, the war rapidly spurred on the US economy. Over the course of two years from 1940 to 1942, unemployment fell from over 7.5 million people in the workforce to 1.5 million. FDR tried every measure he could to raise more money for the war, including massive income taxes on the wealthy, including a 95% tax on those making over $100,000, which in 2023 is almost $2.1 million a year. Congress constantly overruled FDR's efforts. However, the wartime economy was enough to help America through. The nation produced more military planes than Japan, Germany, the UK, and the USSR combined, just in 1944 alone. There was also the somewhat obvious inclusion of the nuclear program going on behind the scenes. By the late 1930s, several influential scientists, including Einstein, approached FDR with the fear that Germany was developing nuclear weapons. After Pearl Harbor, FDR handily secured funding to start up the Manhattan Project, the nuclear program that would see the US develop the atomic bomb. At the time of producing this episode, I haven't seen the movie Oppenheimer, I only watched Barbie as part of the Barbenheimer experience, good movie, go watch it, but I am interested in how they tell the background history of that story. So, as much as FDR had been hoping to revitalize the economy with the New Deal, at the end of the day, it would be the rest of the world that helped get America back on track. And just in time for another election in 1944. While a third presidential term was considered heresy by many politicians, it was just generally assumed that FDR would run for a fourth term in 1944. And he did. And he won the election again, with better results than in 1940. He was America's wartime leader. The man who had helped get the nation out of the Great Depression. Unfortunately, FDR was also in very poor health. By 1940, he had been struggling with several dire heart issues due to a lifetime of smoking. During the campaign trail, FDR's personal doctor denied many times that the president was essentially slowly dying. In private, the president even told others that he was considering retiring once the war was over. Unfortunately, FDR would not live long enough to see the world come to a conclusion. In April of 1945, the president suffered a severe brain hemorrhage and passed away. His vice president, Harry S. Truman, assumed the office as the 33rd president of the United States. 
Truman would see the US through the rest of the war and drop two atomic bombs on Japan. By the way, FDR was totally prepared to use atomic weapons on the Axis powers if necessary, but he died before those weapons were completed. FDR also set up concentration camps in the US for Japanese Americans. FDR was truly a once-in-a-generation man. His time as president was a one-time-in-all-of-history affair. Literally, as Congress proposed the 22nd Amendment in 1947 that limited presidents to only running for two terms. He was a man of extreme political power, and a lot of times a man who attempted extreme political overreach. It would be interesting to see how America would be today if FDR had not been limited by Congress and the Supreme Court. That being said, obviously no president should have the power to do anything they want. And we didn't even get into his personal life. Man, he had a wild relationship with his wife, Eleanor. She knew he was cheating on her and almost ended their marriage before FDR's mom stepped in and said, Hey, you can't do that. Think of the public response. But Eleanor herself was a great historical figure. She transformed the idea of the first lady from just the president's wife to a figure who stood for national morals and outreach. Man, what a couple. There's so much more I could have covered about FDR during this episode, but I mostly just wanted to focus on his handling of the economy, so unfortunately a lot of topics had to be held off on. Like the Japanese-American concentration camps. Seriously, you should read up on those if you get the chance because God forbid the US actually admit to it. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're tackling the story of Simon Bolivar, the man who helped dismantle the Spanish Empire in South America, a titan of freedom and the namesake of Bolivia and Venezuela. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.